0: Let's pray one more time together and ask the Lord uh, to bless our time together in his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, Lord, thank you as we emerge out of worship with singing and song. Father, may we immerse ourselves into worship with preaching and hearing your word. And we pray, God, that you would be glorified in all that we say, all that we do here. Lord, use this passage of scripture, I pray, Lord, to encourage your people, to strengthen your church, Lord, to give us a proper perspective of biblical rest. And ultimately, Father, where that rest is found, we pray that you would be blessed uh, to be here among us and to bless our time together, illuminate our minds, open up our heart to receive what your word has to declare to us today. Father, we look for you to be glorified in all this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we are continuing on with um, chapter 4 and what the Bible teaches in terms of God's rest. Last week, we talked about the promise of rest. The fact that there remains, as it says there, beginning in verse 1, there remains this promise of entering His rest. And now I want to ask the more... Um, the, the more uh, 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 straightforward question of what is this rest all about, and what I've entitled The Way of Rest, The Way of Rest. Let me begin by reflecting on an article that I read out of the Huffington Post, which is, if you know anything about the Huffington Post, it's a left-leaning website, but it had an article that just struck me, and it grabbed my my attention because anytime the world in the secular world in particular talks this way it just kinda grabs my attention this is the this is the art this is the, the title of the article written by howard Feynman, why the world is spinning into crisis everywhere that was the title of the article and Feynman was actually relying very heavily on the work of the president for of uh, the nonpartisan group the council of foreign relations richard Haas, Now, Haas is is very uh, well-known in politics. He actually served under three presidents, both Bush presidents he served under. But Haas essentially argued for what he saw as global destabilization that was based on what he called the age of non-polarity, where superpowers are no longer sole players that control and change the world. Well, that was a very interesting read. I encourage you guys to go back and read that or look it up on the Internet. But um, basically what he said is that somewhere around the turn of the 20th to the 21st century, something drastic happened in the world where we went from a, uni-po- a unipolar or a single power uh, world where we're where, where selective states, world powers like America, were basically in charge of this fast-moving world and controlled where the world was going. But now he says that the world is changing, and this is what he wrote. He says, now the world faces a free-for-all in which non-state actors like terrorists, global corporations, religious and ethnic tribes, sovereign wealth funds, and non-profit charities, just to name a few, are as crucial as countries in shaping the order of a non-polar world. And I think all we need to do really is reflect on Al-Qaeda or ISIS to, uh, to see the reality of what he is setting here, what he's saying here, that terrorism can unsettle the world as much or even more so than a single state power can now. That's the world in which we live. And so Feynman is picking up on what Haas is saying here, and this is the way that that article begins, why the world is spinning into crisis everywhere. Listen to the way the world is reflecting upon itself right now. It says, Israel versus Hamas, Ukraine versus Russia, unaccompanied minors at the Texas border, Syria in flames with a militant caliphate at the door, Iran is stalling for time for nukes, and a rising China sowing fear throughout all of the rest of Asia. The world seems dangerously unmanageable these days. That's exactly right, and we agree with that. But the, the issue at hand is, how do we find our way out of this? How do we find our way out of this crisis that Howard Feynman is talking about here? Because what we're looking at, basically, is a world that is at the opposite extreme of what the Bible is giving us here a promise of, which is rest, peace, tranquility. What is the opposite of all these fears? Security. Safety, and that is exactly what the world lacks. In fact, forget about the global issues, just think of, on a more personal level. Total depravity renders man completely reckless, restless, immoral, darkened in his mind and in his thoughts, in his emotions, and, his, and in his fallen ambitions. We need to go no further than the human heart that to know that we live in a world where people are not at rest they're anything but at rest. What the world needs, of course, is peace from all of this unrest. And God offers that rest, and that's what I see here. I see here a tremendous gospel offer of rest. God is offering man that rest, but it comes in a particular way. So we have to ask the broader questions now. What is that rest? What is the way of God's rest? How do we get it? And what does it look like to have true rest? And so for that, several things I want to point out to you. Number one, the way of God's rest is by faith alone. Is by faith alone. Look back with me in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. And so there's no question about how a person comes into that rest But that we come into it by faith. You know, Scripture presents itself in a series of covenantal arrangements where God is said to be in covenant with man, where God makes certain covenantal promises to his people, and God's people experience certain covenantal blessings in light of those promises. But God's covenant blessings, however, are never fully experienced until we see God in full covenant con- uh, consummation or we could say even communion where God is dwelling in the midst of his people fully redeemed and fully restored in heaven and so I want to take a look at that with you Revelation chapter 21 if you would turn there with me because it is not until we reach this new heaven new earth status where Revelation gives us a picture of the complete rest of God's people, eternal rest, total absolute bliss for the people of God. And the reason I was drawn to it is because, like Hebrews, there is a condition. So Hebrews is setting out a powerful promise of rest, not without a condition. And the same thing holds true all the way through Scripture Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3, we see this consummate rest of the people of God. And it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Doesn't that sound just absolutely glorious? And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these things, or write these words. They are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now look at the condition. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, The unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Absolutely amazing. This is the consummation of God's rest. Its typological form reaches full antitype here. All the types are over, and all that we have is the total reality of what Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about. But here in Hebrews 4, it's not so much with the consummation of the rest that the author is concerned with as much as its inauguration. How do we get in? That's the point. And, of course, it begins by faith alone. The author is trying to stress that there is an opportunity of entering God's rest by trusting in the gospel firm until the end you remember the overall background of the book of Hebrews. Here are new covenant believers who are being tempted now to loosen their grip on the new covenant liberty, their new covenant freedom, their new covenant status and to go back to old covenant concepts, old covenant institutions, old covenant sacrifices, old covenant priesthoods, etc., etc., etc. And what the whole book of Hebrews is written to do is to say, don't lose your grip, hold firm until the end. And he gives us several things in this passage. I want you to see this, and I'll read it for us, but verses 3 to 6 are giving us these three things that show us that there is an opportunity for future rest. And it says here in verse 3, for we have believed, we who have believed, we enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter the rest. And so therefore, Israel and what happened there in the wilderness generation that we've been studying this whole time is and stands for the opportunity of future rest. Also, it goes on to say, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the set on the seventh day from all of his works. And so in addition to that, is that God is at rest, but man is not yet at rest. There still remains some to enter. And so the fact that God is at rest beckons that we too are meant to be at rest, even as God is. Verse 5, and again, this passage says, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in. And so again, looking at God's old covenant vow, that the people who disobeyed and the people who disbelieved in the wilderness fell. They were laid low, as Paul says, in the wilderness, and they did not enter the rest of Canaan. But we know that Canaan stands for something greater. As the hymn says, there is a land of pure delight where saints' immortals reign. And this land is where pleasure banishes pain as we read in Revelation 21. Now, let's get more into the nature of the rest because there is a raging debate that unless you like commentaries and footnotes, you may not care, but I'll bring it to you anyway. But there is a raging debate among exegetes as to the exact nature of this rest. Is it solely a future reality that the book of Hebrews is talking about, that it is talking about solely entering into heaven? The rest is cast as a promise, after all. The rest is something that remains, after all, for the people of God, verse 9. Or is the rest a present reality based on past or a past experience of faith? Now, the grammar here is really interesting because it gives us a past-tense participle in the word believe. So, the ones having believed. And then he gives us a present-tense verb in the word to enter, the ones having believed we enter that rest Now, after a very long discussion Peter O'Brien in his commentary comes to the conclusion that what Hebrews is talking about is strictly a futuristic rest for the people of God that has no uh, that, that we do not experience now well I'm gonna take a different approach because I think as with all soteriology there is always a already not yet tension that exists where we have been justified, but we will be justified. We have been sanctified, but we will be sanctified. We have been glorified, according to Romans 8.29-31. Uh, through 31. We, Verse 30, I think that's what it is. Boy, you shouldn't do this when you're in the pulpit, but it's in there, verse 30, I think. It's amazing because it speaks about our glorification is past tense, as if it already happened. But we know that we still yet need to be glorified. If you reflect on what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, where the consummation language is referred to there as a present reality, then you see the balance of what this is saying, I believe. We have already, brothers and sisters, we have already come to Mount Zion. But nevertheless, one day we will be in Zion we have already come to the city of the living God because he uses all present tense. But then it says, "We." but then of course, who would deny one day we will enter the city of God? And this is the way that it works. We've already come, it says, to the new Jerusalem, but yet we know that the new Jerusalem awaits us. We have already come to a myriad of angels, but we know that one day we will see all of the angels worshiping around the throne of God. So it is an already not yet dynamic, I believe. And I think Philip Hughes has a good balance when speaking of this. He says this, God's rest is already and has been since the creation of the world a reality, and it is future only in relation to the consummation for God's people. So only in relation to consummation is it in future reality. What that means is that faith gives us the assurance that we are presently at rest with God, that we have ceased striving, and we have ceased working. Our toil is over, and it reminds us, of course, of the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so when a person believes and It comes into that confession, comes into that confidence, they come into that assurance that they have maybe a substitute, the word rest for peace with God. There is a tranquility, there is a communion, the hostility is over, right? And we are in His almighty hands. But there's another way of God's rest. It's not just by faith alone, but it, the way of God's rest is also, we can say, by divine analogy, by divine analogy. The fact that God's rest is a present reality and the believer's rest is also present, however partial the reality is, means that the way to understand God's rest is based on this divine and human analogy that Hebrews is giving us here in other words, look at verse 3. It says, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So what he's doing here is he's returning us back to Genesis 2.2. And what he's setting out for us here is, look, since God is at rest, man too is designed to be at rest in a state of rest. After God created the world, he entered into a perfect state of rest where he was refreshed. That is, God appreciated what He had done. Some people look at that term and they think that what it means is that God was tired and like you and I, He needed a break. (laughs) It doesn't mean anything like that. What the language is trying to articulate is that God is looking back over all of His works and He's enjoying. He is taking pleasure in what He has done. He is in a state of perfect Sabbath rest. It really is a picture of a a type, a shadow of God's redemptive work in Christ, because after Jesus accomplished redemption, He too entered into a state of eternal rest with God. And when a person believes in the gospel, they cease striving from their works, and they enter into that state of rest. I like what Leon Morris had to say here. I just felt like using a lot of quotes for this sermon for some reason. You know I don't use a lot of quotes, but today was different. I just found some of these men's uh, words meaningful. Leon Morris says this, Those who bear Christ's yoke know the rest at the center of their being. I like that. And And that's what salvation is. That at the very core of our being we are at rest and we are at peace with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, having been justified by his faith, we are at peace with God. The war is over. As God's creatures made in His image, we are called to be like God in many respects. And it is not surprising then to see this analogy between God resting and us resting through faith, we enter this fellowship with God. We enter this rest. We inherit His promises. We enter this rest that the children of Israel failed to enter. We experience His peace at the very center of our beings. And like God, we rejoice in His redemptive glory. We rejoice in what He has done through Jesus Christ. Jesus now is our rest. He symbolizes for us the rest that the land of canaan could never symbolize that the sabbath itself could never symbolize you had covenant breakers who observed the sabbath and were never truly at rest but because you're in christ you are truly and fully at rest rest with god let me give you another point the uh, the other point it's this that the way of god's rest is also by redemptive history That's really what we've been at here in Hebrews. If you look back over chapter 3, look with me, going all the way back to chapter 3, beginning in verses 1 through 6, you remember that he introduced the, the idea of Moses as a servant in God's house. And jumping from there, he begins to launch into an exposition of Psalm 95. Well, the context of Psalm 95 is rooted in Numbers 14 and in other places. But in Psalm 95, we are given this redemptive historical picture of a people who did not enter the rest because of unbelief. And so much of chapter 2 and chapter, or excuse me, chapter 3 and chapter 4 has to do with this history. So that means we need to be good students of biblical history, biblical history. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because there, over and over, the Apostle Paul reiterates how that we need to look back at history for our benefit. You know this. And it's much in the same context. Look at verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, nevertheless... With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You see that? It's the same exact context that we're in here in Hebrews. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us. You see how we're supposed to learn from history? And yet what do you have? You have Christians neglecting their, their Old Testament. Sadly, to our own detriment, if we neglect the Old Testament history. But I want to bring in a different issue a a redemptive historical issue. And what do I mean by that? Well, look down to verse 11 because there's a certain way that you and I must read the history in the Old Testament. It says here, Now these things happen to them as as, as, as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Now watch this phrase. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come very interesting phrase that he tacks on to the end of that. So what is Paul saying there? He's saying many things. One of the things he is saying there is that we have an organic connection to Old Testament history. We are connected. We are inseparable. You know, you can study history a lot, and it may not have any bearing on your life whatsoever. Um, You can study the history of the Ming dynasty. You can study the history of the, uh, of the Aztec people, of the American Indian. You can study the history of all, the, all sorts of civilizations, and it may not have any bearing upon you whatsoever. I don't know how Aztec history really matters to you when you're sitting at Starbucks sipping on your latte. But biblical history does. Biblical history has everything to do with your life, your everyday life and the reason why is because it's redemptive historical history its redemptive historical narrative in other words we are connected to the history of the Bible and not only is he saying we have an organic connection to the history of the Bible but furthermore the way he sums it up is that we stand in a particular place in that history notice what he says we are those this is who we are those whom the eight, the ends of the ages have come. Amazing. What is he saying? He's saying that we are standing at the end of the age. That we are standing now in the final scene of God's redemptive drama. That the, the climax of God's story has already been reached in Jesus Christ. And now we are standing and we are participants of the last scene of the drama of salvation on planet earth. Praise the Lord. We stand to gain from what Jesus has done. We stand looking over and what Peter says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that the Old Testament prophets, they were not serving themselves. They were serving us, a future generation. That's why they were writing. That's what they were describing. And so therefore, God's history, to sum it all up, God's history is not a history of of random events well i think the world needs this so bad doesn't it i think college students need this so bad they need to have a redemptive historical view of history because without it guess what many college students have absolutely no clue what their purpose in life is why they exist why they are here life itself has no purpose i just saw this this week at unt praise the lord i got a praise report for you We had two young ladies who came up to us after the preaching and both of them for different reasons saying, you guys restored our faith in the Bible. One young lady said, I had just began to dip into existentialism in my philosophy class and I was pondering and I was engaged in all sorts of immorality and drugs and drinking and I was going completely astray from God and she said, she says, she said, I came to, I began thinking, maybe nothing is the point of it all. Maybe there's just nothing. Can you believe, can, can you conceive of anything more demonic than that? And a young girl coming to the conclusion, the point of it all is nothingness. I have no purpose. There is no purpose. Life has no purpose. Everything is just a random collection, an endless succession of meaningless events that mean nothing because we are all meaningless people. What a, talk about a self-destructive worldview. But the Bible is the complete opposite. History is gospel history. God's history is gospel-centered. The whole point of it all is so that we would see and hear the good news. Look back with me at the text. Back in Hebrews chapter 4. Look at what it says. It says, in, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So in other words, everything is moving forward, pushing us forward to the gospel event and a new generation a fresh generation that would hear God's promises. But the phrase I want to call your attention to is the critical one there in verse 6. They had good news preached to them. And we know already from the text, if you go back, as we will, we know that they failed. And so I want to point out three things that are absolutely important in terms of listening to the gospel or concerning this good news. And the very first one is that we learn to hear the gospel in our own generation. This, of course, means that we learn to listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. That is, after all, what the good news is all about. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1, because I think when we remove the redemptive historical factor we make the gospel a man-centered piece of news instead of a Christ-centered piece of news. But if you look at the way that Paul handles the gospel in Romans chapter 1, what you find is that the gospel is more about the benefactor than the beneficiaries of the good news. Let's read what he says. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And this gospel, verse 2, He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? So far as he's pontificating on the gospel, he has yet to mention you or I. (laughs) Everything has to do with what God did in Christ. That's why it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And so we had better get this, because if we don't understand what is uppermost in the heart of God, if we don't understand what is primary in the gospel, then guess what? When, we, when, we, when God does something that shows us that we are not primary, when God does something that we see that undermines our man-centeredness, then we will become offended. We will become easily moved. But when we understand that the gospel first and foremost has to do with what God did in Jesus Christ, then guess what? None of our circumstances will move us. Because the whole universe can reject the gospel and it is still good news. It's good news because it's about Jesus Christ. It becomes good news to us only when we learn to listen to the good news. They did not listen. They had good news preached to them but they failed. They failed because, as you know, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 19, they failed to listen to the gospel. More importantly, they failed to believe the gospel. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And here he's saying, in short, that unbelief is inseparable from disobedience. So faith and obedience go together. So we have to learn to listen to the gospel. Number two, we need to learn to obey the gospel. That's the second part. And that's what it says right here. They had the good news preached to them, and they failed to enter because of disobedience. You see that? They didn't trust the gospel, in other words. Because someone that trusts the gospel submits to the the commands of the gospel submits to the Lordship of Christ, the Christ of the gospel, and is under the authority of the gospel and is obedient to the gospel. Disobedience is diametrically opposed to faith. One of the reasons why, uh, especially as a pastor, I don't run around with spiritual paranoia, wondering, oh, are people obeying? Are Are you being obedient? Are you being obedient? Are you being obedient? I don't think you could tolerate me, tolerate me for much longer if I did that to you, but one of the reasons I don't have to do that is because obedience flows out of the heart of a regenerate person. And so I trust what Paul says in Romans 16, or excuse me, Romans 6, verse 17, when he says that you have learned how to become obedient to that pattern of doctrine that was handed over to you. When a person is regenerate, their heart becomes moldable, shapeable. The heart heart becomes uh, palatable so that God can work it and shape it and sanctify it and chip away all all the deeds of the flesh. But it's more than that. And Paul trusted in the power of the gospel. That's why in many of the epistles, there's a general thanksgiving that goes to God for the obedience of faith that is in the churches. Turn with me to Romans 16, uh, because I think here Paul shows us that he trusted the power of the gospel, the gospel having been heard, the gospel having been understood, and having been apprehended by faith to produce obedience in the lives of god's people romans chapter 16 beginning at verse 25 it's amazing because it so parallels what we're looking at here in hebrews it's just amazing fascinating fascinating oh and by the way uh just maybe on a scholarship issue you know a lot of people think that not a lot of people but mainly liberal type people they would say they would argue that romans is maybe a collection of different letters that it wasn't all written in one body okay Uh, The reason, maybe one good argument against that is that the ending of Romans here, uh, Romans sort of forms kind of like an inclusio, the whole letter beginning and ending with the same thing, showing it to be one big body of, of teaching because he ends with the same thing that he begins the letter. Anyway, that's just an aside, and I'll, I'll get to it here in a minute. But look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. That's kind of similar to what we're looking at here in Hebrews. A long time ago. A long time has elapsed, Right? It says, but now it is manifested by the Scriptures of the prophets. Notice that. It is manifested by the Scriptures of the prophets. According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. And what is the result, the natural result of the gospel having been heard and the gospel having been apprehended, leading to obedience of faith? You see that? The reason why I say he begins and ends, because if you remember Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says that his apostleship was, for what? For the obedience of faith. And here he is again, closing with that same exact theme. So we move beyond just hearing the gospel. A lot of people hear the gospel. I've heard lots of people give lip service to the gospel, say they believe in the gospel, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the Bible. But their lives don't reflect it. There's no obedience. There's no submission. Jesus said, If you love me, you what? You will obey my commands. The gospel is not an antinomian gospel, meaning it is not a lawless gospel. The true gospel necessarily leads to a life of obedience. No, you won't be perfect. No, you won't be sinless but you will be obedient nevertheless. Now, the last thing. Not not only do we need to learn to obey the gospel, last of all, we need to learn to apply the gospel to our lives. The problem with the wilderness generation is that the Word of God never got to the point where they applied it. It was emptied of its power for them anyway because of their disobedience. Now, isn't that true? There stands the Word of God. It is at your fingertips. It's at your disposal. But if you choose to disobey, you will short-circuit its effectiveness in your life. The same thing. There's nothing that will foster more blessing, more assurance in your life than living a life that is obedient to the Word of God. But this is what Israel did not do. They didn't enter because they disobeyed. And therefore, the marvelous thing about Hebrews here is that Hebrews sees another day where a fresh generation has the opportunity to believe and apply the gospel to their lives. God gives us this opportunity when He says here in verse 7, look at verse 7 back in Hebrews, He again fixes a certain day, and oh, aren't you glad that He fixed another day, saying, today... Through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, that verse, verse 7 there, and that quotation out of Psalm 95 binds chapter 3 and chapter 4 together. Look back at chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Look at verse 14, or excuse me, 15, while it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And again, here, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. One of the reasons why when I'm preaching or sharing the gospel with people, I have, I have no qualms with saying, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Don't harden your heart. You feel conviction? Are you feeling the weight of your sin on your shoulder? Don't harden your heart to that. Believe in the word of God. Believe in the gospel. This new day, this today, which now no doubt has a typological significance, has dawned. Where did it dawn? It dawned in the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross was the dawning of a new day. Even though the faith of men failed, the promises of God did not. It didn't matter if Israel did not believe. It It doesn't matter if you and I don't believe. Our personal unbelief does not nullify the promises of God. And so therefore, just because Israel failed, that does not mean that God cannot extend yet another day for another generation, another people to believe in those promises, and to enter that rest. This is, what, this is why the gospel is good news for us. Because the good news starts with Jesus having accomplished redemption for his people, and the good news for us is that he fixed another day to tell us, do not harden your heart if you hear his Voice. This is what mankind needs so desperately. Let's return in closing. In closing, let me return to the chaos of our world for a moment. You know, your neighbors need rest. Just a few neighbors that my wife and I have gotten to meet at our, in our neighborhood, and I better be careful because some of our neighbors have already ended up in this church. So, um, but I know just the, from the little bit of interaction we've had with our neighbors, people need rest. There's all sorts of unrest. There's all sorts of dysfunction. There's all kinds of abuse going on. There's all sorts of division in the home. There's all sorts of problems with the kids. People are in chaos. Let's be honest. Many people are living their lives virtually in shambles, morally speaking. They're completely out of sorts, especially with God. And yet God offers that rest. And the beautiful opportunity for you and I is to say, look, that rest is by faith alone. <laughs> you don't have to do anything for it. You can't earn it. We're not asking you to go on a 12-step program. We're not calling you to psychology. We're calling you to the gospel. It is the power of the gospel that has the power to change a person's life. And so it's for us to trust in the power of the gospel. In addition to that, when man finds rest, he will be like God. He will be as at rest So every time you think of God and the Sabbath, you think of God resting after creation, remember that that was a sign or a symbol of man's need to rest in Jesus Christ. Just amazing. And then last of all, looking back at the history of Israel, why history is so important is because looking backwards helps us to look forward. When we look back at the history of Israel, we know how we are to live and how we are to progress in our own Christian life. Lastly, let me just talk about the word rest. Christians are supposed to be at rest. That means that you and I are not to have lives that are anxiety-filled. right? What does Paul say? Be anxious for nothing. How can we do that? After you just read to us non polarity and global destabilization, because you are in Christ, and the fact that you are in Christ and you are in union with Christ means you are in the safest place in all the universe. So it doesn't matter what terrorism does, it doesn't matter what the state does, it doesn't matter how secular the world gets. In Christ, you are in the safest possible refuge that you can be in. You can trust in Him. So that means that we can have a certain carefree attitude. Not careless, but carefree. I was thinking about this because I think of so many people that, you know, especially living in a somewhat still conservative state, a lot of people are just wrapped up in politics, right? and they're looking to politics to rescue them from whoever. Fill in the blank. I think you know who, what blank you got to fill in. But anyway, <laughs> there's plenty of politicians people don't like, and they think that other politicians are the way out of the, ca- the chaos and the mess. But as a believer, as a Christian who has entered God's rest, we should be dominated with a certain state of mind that says, we are at peace, we are at rest, come what will, Right? Come what will, we have peace, we have rest, we have an assurance, a security, we have built our life on the rock, we can't be moved. I really think our neighbors should be able to look into our lives and say, why are you so happy? You know, I smile a lot. When I was a kid, I'd get teased a lot at school. Why are you smiling? There's nothing to be happy about. I can't help it. But really, we should have a smile on our face as believers who are dominated with the rest that God gives us so that our neighbors look at us and say, what are you so happy about? Don't you know how bad the economy is? Don't you know all prices are gonna go right back up and we're all gonna be paying $80 for our SUV? Whatever it is, but we have the golden opportunity, friends, to be different, to be dominated with a different attitude and a different heart and a different reason why we can cope Because the gospel promises that we will one day enter the full consummation of God's rest. And that's why Hebrews is saying, hold firm, hold fast. You have a confession now, keep that conviction, and let that assurance remain firm until the end. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as the book of Hebrews itself tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 we have need of endurance. And we confess, Father, to you that we get weary. We confess, Father, to you that we get distracted, that we get overwhelmed. And sometimes all it is is a bill. We get overwhelmed by financial, financial issues. All of the issues that make up our life can so easily move us, especially when our eyes are not fixed On Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, I pray, fix our faith and fix our eyes firmly on Jesus yet again. And that's why we're here, Lord. Remind us of that as a church. Remind us of that, that as the body of Christ, no matter what any one of us is going through, we have to stimulate one another for love and good works. All the more, As things approach, as things draw near, as things get worse, as life gets more complicated, all the more we need to be in the trenches with one another, encouraging, reminding, rebuking, admonishing, and strengthening each other. This pleases you, and this is well-pleasing in your sight. And so, Father, help us to do it. We ask for your strength. God, we can't. I, in no way, want to ever convey, oh, this is us. Just pulling ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. We will do it. Watch out. Here we come. No, Lord, let us rest all of our endurance, all of our perseverance on your power because we know that we are being kept by the power of God. That we work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. We know ultimately where all the glory goes the one who is in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.